about you guys up in Sydney, but it's really great to have you back. And open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 5. We're continuing our series this morning on the book of Revelation, and today we're going to look at the whole of chapter 5. And as seems to be my habit, I, I, I tend to start the chapter a little slowly, and then I kind of speed up, accelerate, so don't be dismayed if it uh, seems to be going too slowly at first. And we are coming up to some of the very challenging parts of Revelation, particularly next week, looking at chapter 6. Chapter 5, of course, is the, the uh, vital foundation for what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks in chapter 6. Well, it's, it's awful to think that slavery existed in the United States only 150 years ago or thereabouts. And the last slave, Sylvester McGee, didn't die until 1971, the year after I was born. And there are almost certainly children of slaves still alive today in the United States. A slave was entirely owned by their master, she had to serve the master as soon as she was old enough to carry things and to scrub things. Every minute of every day belonged to her master. And all the results of her work, even her children, belonged to the master. And even her death belonged to him. He determined where and how she would be buried. And this picture... This, this picture of slavery is a, an awful picture of what is true today in the world around us, that we are born into slavery, the Bible teaches, that we are born into the slavery of sin and death. From the moment we are born, God's word teaches, sin and death owns us. And every minute of our life is spent serving this dreadful master, Paul said in Romans 7, For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. That's a picture of this, this awful slavery. And for some, this looks like a slavery to, to money or a slavery to power. For others, it looks like a slavery to being liked. And that is a slavery, isn't it? A slavery of being esteemed. The slavery of feeling that you leave, need to leave your mark on this earth. For some, it is a slavery to their stomachs, a slavery to their lusts. And for all of us comes the day of death that we cannot free ourselves from. And then the Bible teaches judgment and the second death and eternal punishment. That's the dreadful slavery into which we are all born. But from the beginning, the Lord had a plan to free us from this slavery. Look here at Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw, says John in his heavenly vision, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, remember last week, the one who sat on the throne, ruby and jasper, surrounded by the, the emerald rainbow, the 24 elders, 
the four living creatures, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What is that scroll? It is the plan of him who sits on the throne. This is God's plan for history. This is God's decree. It's a very full decree. The, 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 the scroll has writing on both sides. It is God's decree, God's plan for history, for what shall happen in history. But it is sealed. It's a sealed plan. It's sealed with seven seals. And we know by now that seven in the book of Revelation means completeness or perfection. It's fully sealed up. And I heard, well, John says, sorry, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? What's the angel asking for there? Who can open God's decree, God's plan for the future? Who can make this plan happen? Who can carry out God's plan? That's what the question is. An architect can design a magnificent house, but they're going to need someone who's qualified, equipped, skilled, and able to build that house, or it's just going to remain on the plans, isn't it? might be a magnificent plan, but if there's no one to carry out that plan, it will never be built. In the same way, here is the one on the throne with his scroll, his decree for the future, but someone must enact it. Someone must carry out this plan. And so this mighty angel asks not just heaven, but also the earth and also the under the earth, who can carry out this plan? Who can break open the seals and open the scroll? And the reply is silence. No one on heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John weeps. It's a word that meant, that, that meant to weep aloud, to weep noisily. He weeps because there is no one who can carry out the decree of God, God's good plan for the future. No one can be found in heaven or on the earth or under the earth to execute this plan. And the question that, that you and I should have at this moment is, why does there have to be some kind of special person distinctly worthy or qualified to open the scroll of God's history to carry out God's plan for the future? And the reason is chapters 6 and 7. And if you have read ahead, and I hope you have, you will see that God's plan is a plan both of judgment and 
And what? Mercy. Judgment and mercy. God has planned to conquer evil and he has planned to save a vast number out of evil. A huge number, an uncountable number, says the book of Revelation. And that means only a particular kind of person can carry out God's plan for the future because this is not just a plan for judgment, but it's a plan for judgment and destroying evil and a plan of mercy for the nations. Only a mighty warrior could come and destroy evil, but only a mighty saviour could come and carry out God's plan of mercy. And that's why John wails. That's why he's weeping. Because he wants evil to be destroyed. And don't we all? And he wants God's merciful plan that an uncountable number will be saved. That's why John is so distressed. That's why he's crying Because if if there's no one who can do this, then evil won't be destroyed. And sinners won't be saved. Who can do it? Who can do it? And one of the elders said to me, says John, do not weep. Stop your wailing. Behold, look the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In 1800 BC, God promised through Jacob that the tribe of, from the tribe of Judah would come a mighty king and ruler A lion, the lion of Judah, would come to rule. And in about 1000 BC, that promise was reiterated to King David. And God said, from your house, I'm going to raise up a universal and eternal king. And he will rule over all people forever. And he will conquer and destroy evil. And so the elder says to John, Don't weep. Stop your wailing. The lion of the tribe of Judah has come. That promised king has come. And does it say he's going to triumph? It says he has triumphed. He's already won. Evil has been defeated at its root. But if you're following the logic of this passage, you're not satisfied. You can't be satisfied. Why? Because God's decree, as we can see from chapter 6 and 7, which is a a decree to destroy evil and to save a vast multitude. Well, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's going to conquer evil and in fact has conquered evil. But what about the mercy? What about the salvation? 
What about this vast number of people who need to be freed from this terrible slavery to their sin? Who's going to do that? And so the elder has, has told John about the Lion of Judah. And John turns to look, and what does he see? What on earth is that? <laughs> Sounds like someone's snoring loudly, but... Uh, <laughs> So someone who can find out what that is and thank you. <laughs> okay. James has dealt with it already. I don't know if you were distracted by that, but I there's no way I was gonna be able to keep going with that, so Okay. Looks like All right, thanks James. Thank you. Dad broke it. Okay, good. It stopped making noise. Whatever it was, it stopped. Okay. Let, let, let me pray for a moment. Father, please uh, help us with this passage. Help us to see it, to hear it, to understand it. Uh, help us now to, to refocus. Amen. And so John has been told about the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered and he turns to look and what does he see? Then I saw a lamb, he says. So he's told about a lion but he turns and he sees a lamb. And the lamb's throat is cut. A lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders that we saw last week in chapter 4. And the lamb had seven horns. The horn is a symbol of strength. Seven is perfection, completeness, perfect strength. And it had seven eyes, which is explained to us, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so John is told about the lion of Judah and he turns and sees a slaughtered lamb. A lamb with, with, with blood on it, its throat cut. And it's at the centre of the throne. And it has those seven horns signifying perfect strength and seven eyes signifying the spirit of God. And, and so the book of Revelation is really stretching our minds here, isn't it? Because what's, what's at the centre of the universe where the throne is? Well, it's one like Ruby and Jasper and it is the seven spirits of God and it is the Lamb of God. One God, three persons. The one of Ruby, the Lamb, the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. This is what is, is sacred to Christians, that our God, we worship one God, and he is three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father and the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, separate persons, distinct persons, each of them fully, completely God. And there is one God. 
And so our attention is riveted on the center of heaven, the center of the universe. And here we see, in particular, the slaughtered lamb. Now, what does John say about the lamb? Look here at verse 7. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so all heaven looks to the, to the throne and sees the slaughtered lamb and sings this magnificent song of praise. You have purchased with your blood people for God, from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Now, if, if you and I have been born into slavery and born into the slavery of sin, then this is tremendous news. Remember that, that, that dreadful slavery that I described at the beginning. Every minute of your life, the Bible teaches that you're born into slavery. Every minute of your life spent serving that dreadful master of sin and death. And so you were a slave to money, a slave to power, a slave to being liked, a slave to being esteemed, a slave to leaving your mark, a slave to your stomach, a slave to your lusts. The evil you did not want to do, that you kept on doing, says Paul. You're facing death and judgment and the second death of eternal punishment. And Revelation 5 says that Jesus saw you bound in those dreadful chains and he loved you. And he determined to free you. And he determined to be punished in your place and to give his blood for you. He gave his body to be crucified in your place. He bore the pains of hell in your place. His blood from his head, his hands, his feet and his side flowed for you. And he took his blood, as it were, to the Father and showed the Father his hands and his feet and his side and his brow and he showed his Father the blood and he said, Father, their sins have been paid for. I, I've taken the judgment that they deserved. I've ta taken the penalty for their sins. See, their, their sins have already been punished and they've been punished in me. 
And that's why Revelation 5 says that the, that the Lamb has purchased you with his blood. And he hasn't just purchased you from the penalty of sin. He's purchased you also from the power of sin. I, I, I hope you heard that because I think as uh, Reformed Evangelical Presbyterians, we're very clear on the fact that Jesus bore our penalty and so often forget, and too, too often forget, that he's also destroyed the power of sin in our lives. That sinful master who dominated us, who had captured us, he has been put to death by the blood of the Lamb. And not just you, but people from across the globe, it says here. It's not just about you and me. This is a plan for the globe. And we're going to see an uncountable number of people from across God's globe washed and purchased with the blood of the Lamb. Look there at verse 10. You have made them. This is the song sung to the Lamb. You have made them, those who have been purchased with your blood, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Jesus' blood has freed slaves of sin to become a kingdom for God. A kingdom of people who recognise God, who live under God's rule, who obey God, and a kingdom of priests. And that makes me think of Samuel, the boy Samuel, living in the, the sanctuary of God as a boy, living in the presence of God and hearing the voice of God. The blood of the Lamb has purchased that for you and for me. A kingdom of priests, those who rule and those who live in the presence of God. And it says here that they will reign upon the earth. They will reign upon the earth. Do, do, do you see what, what's happened here? Do you see what the, the lamb has done? The lamb has purchased slaves and has transformed them into kings and queens. Do you see that? Slaves have been turned into kings and queens. Then sin reigned, sin ruled over you, and sin's lieutenants, peer pressure, the world's influence, the world's threats, ruled over you, dominated you, frightened you. But now you reign. Sin doesn't reign. That master has been put to death. They will reign on the earth says the heavenly host to the blood to, to the lamb on the throne. Then what you did was not the good you wanted to do. No, the evil you did not want to do, this you kept on doing, says Paul in Romans 7. But through the blood of Christ Jesus, 
The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And you are controlled no longer by the sinful nature, but by the spirit of Jesus Christ. That is why heaven thunders its praise to Jesus Christ. The Lion of Judah has destroyed evil at its root. And at the very same time, he's redeemed the people. His blood has purchased you. Sin's no longer your master. You were born into sin, born into slavery. But you've got a new master now. Sin does not rule over you any longer. You've been freed. Kings and queens in God's presence. A new master, Jesus Christ. In 1852, just a few years before the Civil War, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote a magnificent portrayal of the brutality of slavery in the South. It's called Uncle Tom's Cabin, and it's a book I think every Christian should read at least once. And at the end of the book, Uncle Tom, who is... uh, an elderly slave, at the end of the book, he has been flogged by his master all night. His cruel master flogs him all night to kill him. And in the morning, he lies in a shed in Kentucky, bleeding, his body shattered, and he's about to die. And George Shelby, who's a character in the book, who was the, the son of Tom's old master, who always loved Tom, he finds him, and he finds him in this, this shed, bleeding and dying. And he comes to Tom and he says, you shan't die. You mustn't die. I've come to buy you. I've come to take you home, he says. Oh, Master George, you're too late. The Lord has bought me, he said, and is going to take me home. And I long to go. Heaven is better than Kentucky. Oh, don't die, says George, lying in this old shed here, Poor, poor fellow. It's a bit melodramatic. I know. (laughs) Don't call me poor fellow, says Tom solemnly. I have been poor, poor fellow, but that's all past and gone now. I'm right in the door, going into glory. Master George, heaven has come. I've got the victory. The Lord Jesus has given it to me. Glory be to his name. And then the last thing he says, Oh, what a thing it is to be a Christian. What a thing it is to be a Christian. I hope you, I hope you can say that. What a thing it is to be a Christian. To know that the Lord has bought you 
with his blood. What a thing that is. What a thing to know that you were a slave of sin and death, but a better future was written for you and countless others. And the lion has conquered and the lamb has been slain and the price has been paid to free you from that slavery. Money is not your master. This world that hates Christ is not your master. Approval of others is no longer your master. Your stomach is not your master. Your lusts are not your master. Persecution is not your master. Christ is your master. And let all heaven break out in praise for that. Like Uncle Tom, we might be shattered and bleeding by the circumstances of life, but in Christ we have victory. In Christ we have heaven. We have been purchased by Christ. And we know exactly where we're going. What a thing it is to be a Christian. And so I finish with the praises of heaven. From verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honour and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's do that now. Let's, let's come to our God and worship him in song. And then we'll come to the Lord's table together. Please stand.